0: This morning, the message is going to be called Roots. It's Sunday, June 6th, and the message is Roots. Roots not meaning the uh, mini-series that we all grew up with teaching us about African heritage, but Roots meaning the Hebraic heritage of Christianity. Sometimes in Christianity, we have this idea, even in our terminology, that Christian is a Gentile thing and the Jews are in Judaism. When the truth of the Bible is... Early believers were called followers of the way. They were Jews. They were still within Judaism. They still considered themselves Jews. They were Jews that followed the way because Jesus called himself the way, the truth, and the life. So they were Jews who had received Messiah. Some people today would call that a completed Jew. They would call it all these names. But here in the West, what do we call Christian Jews? We call them Messianic Christians. We put a title on them as if they are the anomaly within Christianity. We call ourselves Christians and them Messianic Christians. This morning, one of the first things we want to do before I get into some of the teaching is begin to change our thinking. This was their party that we were invited to. They are not the add-ons to Christianity. We are the add-ons to Judaism. And as we begin to get that straight in our minds, there's a couple temptations that I want you to avoid. As you see a shofar in here this morning, and I'm going to teach about a prayer shawl and some things like that. My goal is not to make you Jewish. Nobody in here is Jewish. Nobody in here will be Jewish. I'm not, I, if you wear kippahs, I'll be disappointed in you. I'll think that you've gotten off into error. God has called Gentiles to participate in a Jewish method of redemption. The plan was given to one people on the planet. We have been grafted into that plan. He didn't tell Gentiles to become Jews to be Christians. But get this. He didn't tell Jews to become Gentiles to be Christians. And what we've tried to do throughout history is make Jews who want to receive Jesus become Gentiles. This is supreme ignorance and arrogance. And Romans 11 teaches us the right attitude we're supposed to have towards Israel towards the people that God called, starting with Abraham. And if you want to start in Romans 11, verse 13, we're just going to summarize it because this is just a small point I want to make as we move on. I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Why did Paul make much of his ministry? In the hope that his people, Israelites, would be saved. When you think of Paul, please don't think of a guy in a three-piece suit. Don't think of somebody that looks like a Norwegian Viking. This guy was a Jew. He probably had brown hair, brown eyes. When he says, my own people, he's talking about Israel. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life? From the dead If the, first, if the part of the dough Offered as first fruits is holy Then the whole batch is holy If the root is holy So are the branches It doesn't say if the branches are holy So is the root It says if the root is holy So are the branches So we want to identify what the root And the branches are Because the root's holy And that's what makes the branches holy So we need to know what the root is And how it's holy, right? If we're branches If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Friends, the redemptive plan that was given started with Eve. There's going to be somebody that comes from your body that's going to crush the head of death. As time went on and humanity spread out, it became somewhat hard to identify who that line was, what was going on in God's redemptive plan. In fact, some renegade angels came from the heavens to the earth to corrupt the human race. And they created something called Nephilim. It was the offspring of angels and women. This was uh, something that was corrupt, that was not a descendant of Adam. And so God looked out on the earth and He said it's filled with violence. And He wiped out all mankind all mankind save eight people. Out of those eight people immediately off of the ark, God identifies the one that His redemptive plan will come through. He says it's Shem. Blessed be the God of Shem. May His tents enlarge and Japheth come to live in His tents and cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will He be. There will be three kinds of people in humanity. The one special group that God gave His redemptive plan to, the second group that comes and joins that redemptive plan, and the third group that will not join and become slaves. That summarizes everybody on the planet, but singled it down to one family, Shem's family. As time goes on, the nations begin to spread out throughout the earth. There's a king named Nimrod who defies God's command, begins to build a tower to God, believing himself to be like God. And God has to destroy it. But there's all these peoples on the planet. And immediately after His day, God speaks to another man, a descendant of Shem, a de- descendant of Eve. And He says, Hey, through you, through you, my redemptive plan's going to come. But He doesn't just say through Him. He ties it to land as well. Turn with me to Genesis 12. We're going to look at God's redemptive plan and the root and see what we can learn from the Bible. So what is it about these Jews? I just thought they were good businessmen. (laughs) What is it about these Jews? I thought they were just good in the diamond trade. No, the Jews are the people that God promised His redemptive plan to. Not just the human channel for the Messiah. That's part of it. Not just the people who would protect and preserve God's Word. That's a part of it. But the one people on the planet that God said, they're mine. I purchased them. They've become my sons. My responsibility, that's them. Can you think of a people on the planet that's been more persecuted? You know, I, I feel horrible about what's happened to American Indians in North America. I feel horrible about what has happened to people that were brought from Africa to the North American continent, and none of them, not one, has come close to the suffering of the Jewish people. Not, not one. Now, you don't hear that very much, do you? You hear a, a tremendous amount of sympathy for all other people groups But there's one people group that since 2000 BC has been consistently attacked by all of its neighbors, consistently persecuted by all of its neighbors to the point where they were run out of their own country for 2,000 years. And the world turns a blind eye. CNN will present tonight the occupying Israelis and the poor Palestinians. You can only be an occupying power if you're in somebody else's land that that you're occupying. But God Himself said... This is my land and my people. In Genesis 12, verse 1, we see the following scripture. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I want you to know that there's not been a promise ever given to anyone who followed God that didn't require faith. God doesn't tell him where he's going. He doesn't tell him how he's going to get there. He doesn't tell him how he'll have provision. If God spoke this and said, Matthew, I want you to leave your country, leave your town, leave your people, and go where I'm showing you, what thoughts would come through your mind? How am I going to get there? How am I going to feed my family on the way? When I get there, how will I find work? All of the... He had the same thoughts. But Abraham reasoned in his heart that if God was able to promise it, He was able to perform it. He was saved in the same way that you're saved. He simply heard God, believed it, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so God says to him in verse 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. God will make him a nation, number one. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Abraham, I will make you great so that you can be a blessing. I will bless you so that you can bless others. You know what's wrong with half of this American Christianity that has grabbed on to the bless me concept? They've lost sight of the second part of the concept. Which is, you are blessed to bless. The only reason God gave you anything, whether we're talking about children, households, anything that you have, is so that you can be blessed in order to bless. You remember the movie Pay It Forward? That's the most godly idea that's come out of uh, Hollywood in years and years and years. Now, I'm not suggesting that the movie's godly, but the concept is godly. And you know what? It wasn't their thought. It starts all the way back in 2000 B.C. I will bless you so that you can bless others. That's why God called Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Who will be blessed through Abraham? All peoples. If you're going to be blessed by God, it has to come through the people of Abraham. That's the only way. Everybody on the earth would be blessed through Abraham. The Scripture says that as you look on the other side of your page to Genesis 13:15, Genesis 12 was the overview. Genesis 13. It says this many times, but we're just going to read a few. Verse 15. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring for a little while. Not for a little while. All the land that you see, Abraham, I will give to you and to the seed of your body, your offspring forever. God's promises, Romans says, are irrevocable. His gifts and His calling are without repentance. In other words, He doesn't say, Thomas, I'm going to do it for you, and then change His mind. He doesn't say, David, I will come through for you, and then when it looks hard, say, you know what? David's not really worth it. If God said He was giving the land to Abraham forever, then He meant forever. So why do you think that there's been such a struggle throughout the ages to keep Abraham and his descendants out of the land? Because God promised him the land. In Genesis 15, another chapter or two over. Verse 17, "...when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces." On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land. And then He defines the borders and the people who live there. God chose a man to make a nation. He chose specific land for the nation to be in. He chose the the man, the nation, and then the people, the the descendants, that it would be through. Y'all know that we're opposed at every point in our life. There is a spiritual power that works against you. The Bible calls him one thing. I mean, just very simply. You may not realize it. Satan means opposition. He's your enemy. He's the guy that is opposing you. Well, he heard this. And so from the very beginning, we see Abraham and his seed under attack. Why? Why would that be? Because if the devil can show that God failed in His promise to Abraham, then you can't trust the promises that God made to you. Because remember, it's the root that you were grafted into, not the root grafted into you. If God does not come through for Abraham and his descendants, He cannot come through for you because He would be fallible. He would not be the kind of God that the Bible says He is. If I'm a salesman and I'm talking to you about a house to buy, And I lie to you on one point. What can you assume I might be doing about every other point? See, once I've committed myself to a lie, in your eyes I'm a liar. Well, God's Word is flawless and every promise comes true. David said you could meditate on it day and night because it would stand forever. There is never a day that God's Word will not come through. But let me ask you something. Does it look like times God's Word will not come through? Turn with me to Psalm 83. It's all right for y'all to talk, too. In Psalm 83, we hear David crying out. Actually, it's a psalm of Asaph in the time of David. And he's crying out because he sees something that maybe he doesn't understand. This helps describe the spiritual battle. have Have you wondered why? Do you realize, anybody know how big Minnesota is? I mean, you have an idea. Can you see Minnesota on a map in your mind? The nation of Israel will fit in Minnesota eight times. Think about that. Eight times. The nation of Israel is roughly the size of New Jersey. Guys, it's hard to find New Jersey on a map because the words don't even fit on it. It's so small. And yet it's on the news every day. It's on the news every day. You turn on Fox News right now and within 20 minutes you will hear the nation of Israel mentioned. Why? It's insignificant. Is it because of their vast oil reserves? No. They don't have them. Is it because there's great kings there and unbelievable wealth? No. What is it about Israel that's significant? What's significant is God's credibility is on the line. You know, it was hard to step out and start a church. You know why? the thought hits you, what if it fails? You only have your ability to hear from God and the credibility that you have. That's all you have. And so when you step out, if you pray for somebody in a wheelchair and they don't get out of the wheelchair, it's egg on your face. Now, we have to be willing to do that. We have to have the kind of faith that you put on the line. God put Himself on the line when He chose a people. Just one man and that man that couldn't have children and said i'm going to make you into a great nation i'm going to give you the land everywhere that you can see and your descendants will have it forever he put himself he put his name on the line and there's an enemy the same one that opposes you that is working to show he's not credible he's a vain hope for salvation if you never had somebody look at you and think you know you're wasting your life you know this stuff you believe in is not real that is the how how much more weight would that carry if they could point to specific examples throughout history where God had failed His people? I can tell you what the church does when they think God has failed, and there's been quite a few times the church has thought God has failed. We create creative theology to explain away the promises of God because we can't deal with the fact that God promised something that it doesn't look like is occurring. We just say, oh, well, that's not really what He meant when He promised it. I know He said He promised one people the land, but, you know, I think the church probably replaced that people. Why would the church come up with a lie like that? Because we didn't think our God was as big as the Bible says He is. So we had to explain away His promise and say, oh, well, God hadn't been able to do what He said He was going to do, so He must not have meant that. What He meant was that the church would inherit the land. That's fine as long as there's not a Jewish people in the land. And there wasn't for almost 2,000 years. And something called replacement theology abounded all over the Gentile church. The church has replaced Israel. There's no longer any Israel. They're cursed. They're cut off from God. The problem with that is you would have to tear Romans 11 out of your Bible. And not just Romans 11, but Romans 9. Not just Romans 9, but Romans 10. And by the way, that Scripture that you all love in Romans 8:28 is speaking about the Jews. It's speaking about the Jewish nation. Go back and read it again. In all things, God works together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Do you know who that is in its context? It's the Jews. And in all things, God works even through the hardening, even through the days when they were looking and the Jewish apostles saw the majority of the nation was missing the salvation of God. They were encouraged. In all things, God works together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That was spoken to the nation of Israel. Have you ever even thought about that? I bet not. You were never taught to think about it. Because we are the church. They are the Jews. We need to break down this dividing wall of hostility that we have in our minds. There was a day when the scripture spoke about that wall being broken down, because a Jew would not associate with a Gentile. Today that dividing wall of hostility exists because Gentiles think that we have a monopoly on the God of the Jews. Young in Psalm 83, listen to how this guy says it. "O God, do not keep silent. Be not quiet, O God. be not still. See how your enemies are astir." How your foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Who are His people? Who are those He cherishes? The Bible says it is one nation. He even calls them His Son. Today I've called my Son out of Egypt. We know that applies to Jesus. How do we know it applies to Jesus? Because He was a Jew, and a Jewish writer told us it applies to Jesus. Prior to that, it applied to one nation, Israel. You know what Israel means? Prince with God. Why does that Scripture apply to Jesus? Today I've called my son out of Egypt because he is the prince with God. He's the embodiment of the nation of Israel. Does that mean there is no nation? How can you be a king of something if there is not a nation to be a king of? He's the king of the Jews. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. Why? Why? Why would the enemy want the nation to be destroyed and the name of Israel to be remembered no more? Because this book that we read, that we cherish, that we love, and spend entirely too much time solely in the New Testament, three quarters of this book revolves around the promise of the nation and the promise of the people and the promise of the land. So if the enemy could destroy it, if he could destroy the cherished people, the cherished nation and the cherished land, God would be a liar. Every time you've ever stepped out in faith, the liar has been right there saying, Thomas, Mandy, Jennifer, David, you can't do it. I know God said it, but you can't do it. He won't come through for you. If you step out of the boat, you'll sink. If you open your mouth to speak in other tongues, it won't work. Everybody's going to laugh at you. If you raise your hands to worship, you're going to look stupid. He's right there trying to invalidate the only valid thing we've ever come into contact with in our life, which is God who never lies. His entire focus and his plan of attack centers on the nation of Israel. That's why it's on the news every night. It was no different in David's day. You, you hear this in the psalm. With one mind they plot together. They form an alliance against you. They're attacking the nation of Israel and the writer of the Bible says they're forming an alliance against you, God. Why? Because it's God's name and God's reputation on the line with the nation of Israel. I know I'm kind of being dogmatic about that. It's because it's understated in the church. There's all kinds of services going on right now all over the United States. And I bet not 5% of them will even mention Israel. And if they do, they just see it as the Bible land. They have no idea it's the land of God's chosen people and God's chosen nation. The writer of, of Romans was dealing with this question. Has the promise to Israel failed? Why is that important? Because if the promised Israel failed, you can't trust God either. If He can't heal you, He can't save you. If He can't save you, He can't heal you. You've heard Charismatics say that? Because we're trying to inspire faith in the healing gifts? If He doesn't save Israel, He can't save you. With one mind they plot together, they form an alliance against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hagarites of Gibal, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the people of Tyre, even Assyria has joined them to lend strength to the descendants of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian and as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who perished at Endor and became like refuse on the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zamuna, who has said, Let us take possession of the pasture lands of God. Whose lands are they? They're God's lands. Make them like tumbleweed, O my God, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, or a flame sets the mountains ablaze. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame so that men will seek the name, O Lord. Seek your name, O Lord, as God fulfills His. Pr- Why do we testify? Why, why might I say, hey, does anybody have a popcorn testimony? Stand up and give it. What's God done for you? Why would I do that? Because when David stands up and says, hey, I trusted God for this, and it happened, it encourages everybody else, and they praise the name of God. The one promise that is supposed to bring praises to the name of God is His promises to the nation, to the land, and to the people of Israel. And when we see them being fulfilled, we should rejoice go, oh man, the same God that's promised us salvation is working in the root. It's going to work its way all the way out through the branches. That's the proper view of Christianity. But it's not the one that we typically have. Let's adjust our thinking. Throughout history, man has tried to conform God into man's image. I'll give you an example. In Asia, did you all know that Buddha was not, was not oriental? He was Oriental. The whole, the whole area is called Oriental. He was not Chinese. He was not Japanese. He was not Vietnamese. Did you all know that? He's from India. His name was Sid Hartha. Later he became known as Buddha. You know what? He looked like an Indian. Not an American Indian. An Indian from India. When you see him in the Chinese restaurant, what's he look like though? He's got slanted eyes. You know, He's got their tone, skin color, yellowish. Why would you do that? Why when you go into some homes in the southern part of the United States where they have been oppressed and have strange ideas about God, do you see a black Jesus on the wall? Why? Why in some homes do you see a Jesus that looks like a Norwegian Viking? Jeffrey Hunter, blue eyes, long blonde hair, you know, seven feet tall. Why? Because we want God to be more like us. There's a way that seems right unto man, and in the end, it leads to destruction. It leads to death. In the Bible, there's a prescribed way. Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices, right? They both brought something to God. They were both trying. One was accepted and the other was rejected. You cannot come to God just any way that you want. And you can't think God's a man like you. You have to find out about God and do it His way. Well, as you're doing that, you need to realize that the way that the God of the universe chose to relate to mankind was through a first century Galilean Jew. That means that he was a Jew in every way. It means he looked like a Jew, he talked with the language of a Jew, he dressed like a Jew. I met a guy one time that told me when he prayed and when he thought about Jesus, he thought about him in a business suit because. He thought today Jesus would wear a business suit if He appeared today. That's that's so incredibly ignorant. But what the guy was trying to to say is he saw Jesus as a respectable businessman. That is Americanizing the Gospel. That is forming God into an acceptable image to you. Friends, we need to get the right image because we miss out on Scripture when we don't do it. And where we will close today is... Scripture that you could not understand if you didn't understand the Jewish people. And we read it and we skip over and we don't understand it. Because we have an image of Jesus that is not accurate. We need to see him for what he was, which is a Jew. And don't forget, not just a Jew, but the exact representation of God. God chose to exactly represent himself in a Jew. Isn't that interesting? So why do you think six million of them were killed in the Holocaust? Why do you think they're persecuted everywhere? It's not just because God made them promises. It's because they represent God. Jews are persecuted for the same reason Christians are persecuted. We choose to be identified with God. In fact, if you want to see the life of a Christian and how a Christian is related to by powers around us, study the nation of Israel. As it goes with Israel, so it goes with the nations. Israel's held to a double standard. They kill six people accidentally. The whole world comes out and condemns them. That happened while I was in Israel. Six six to eight people killed accidentally after firing a warning shot. And 14 to nothing. The United Nations votes and says, What they did was wrong. The same day, the United States kills some 40 people in an Iraqi wedding. Nobody comes out and says they were wrong. Nobody throws stones. The United Nations didn't meet. Now, don't get me wrong. I support the United States. I'm just talking about the double stand, the same double standard you have in your workplace. You're reading the Bible. They say, "Oh, Dina's committing time theft." You know, all she wants to do is read the Bible. She never works. Some other guy sitting over there reading a pornographic magazine and drinking a beer at lunch, and nobody says a thing to him. Why is that? Because we choose to be identified with God. Israel's persecuted for the same reason need to get that through our heads. As we begin to understand that, then perhaps we who were not a people that God included in their promise may provoke them to envy. Because they'll see that we stand with them in trouble, that God blesses us. It's all right. We're done with Psalm 83. Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. If nothing else fires you up, and I don't expect you to be able to get all of this message. I really don't. It took me quite a few weeks here recently to wrap my mind around it. If nothing else fires you up, you need to go home and read Ezekiel 36 after this. What if I told you that prophecy had not been fulfilled a long time ago and was not going to be fulfilled sometime in the future, but that daily, at this very moment, you could look out of your window in certain parts of the world and see God's divine prophecy being fulfilled. Would that not be exciting? We read about prophecy all of the time. We say, hey, I wonder what will happen in such and such day. We argue about it. We form theories. I'm pre trib, I'm mid trib, I'm post trib, I'm Kellogg's serial. Whatever it is, in the Kellogg's post, whatever it is, we study that all of the time. If there is a nation that you can go in and sit, and when you look out the window and you see children being married in Israel, when you see flowers that are growing in the desert, you are living in a day to see God's promises being fulfilled. God proving to the world that He was true and every man a liar. God proving that the theologians of the Middle Ages right up until May 14, 1948, were utterly blind. Because they said it wouldn't happen. It couldn't happen. For 2,000 years they haven't been a nation. So all of those promises to the nation must apply to the church. It was wrong. In our day we've seen that. The Bible says that the Temple Mount would be trampled on. That Jerusalem specifically would be trampled on until the time of the Gentiles was fulfilled. In 1967, a time that is close to our lifetime, if not within the lifetime of the people in this room, We saw Jerusalem for the first time in thousands of years fall into Israeli hands. The time of the Gentiles is fading. And we're moving into a time when God's focus will be on the nation of God, Israel. We need to wake up. It's been okay for our forefathers to have wrong thoughts. It's not been okay, but it it didn't hinder the plan of God. But if we are a generation of the last days, which every church seems to think we are, and the best selling books at Walmart talk about because people are interested in, then we better get God's end times perspective. I'm convinced the church is as blind today as we say the Jewish people were when Jesus came. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Asleep at the wheel, fat, lazy, drunken. Affluence has not been good for the church. Persecution would be good for the church. I'm not a sadist. I'm not standing up here saying, you know, I wish our kids were being killed and we were being burned. But the church was a whole lot more healthy when it meant something to be a Christian. For the last 2,000 years, the devil seemed to be succeeding in his destruction of the land and the people and of the nation. Think about it. Under Titus, the temple that represented God's presence was destroyed. Under Hadrian, in 132, there was a Jewish revolt, and Hadrian was so angered that the Jews almost won. He said, you know what? Every Jew is circumcised at birth. They're circumcised in a covenant with them, with God, and with the land. Threefold covenant. Them, God, and the land. Since part of their relationship with God is central to the temple, it's been destroyed. Part of their relationship with God is essential. Sinners around the land of Israel, let's throw them out of the land. And he began driving the Jews out of their own land. He said, you know what? Since this land is called Israel and it reflects a promise that God made to a man named Israel, let's change the name. Let's see, who is Israel's biggest enemy? Hadrian not being a Bible scholar and the people around him not being a Bible scholar remembered the stories of David and the Philistines. He said, let's call it Philistia, which to us is Palestine. That's how it gets the name. Because these people were trying to prove to the Jews that their God had failed them. You move on from Hadrian you get into the Dark Ages. By the year 300, when the wolf put on sheep's clothing, Rome that had been conquering, trying to crush and kill Christians, suddenly declared itself to be Christian, we find no friends of the Jewish people in this new Christian era. In fact, they're expelled from all the nations around the world where they had run to flee Hadrian and the other persecutions. From Spain, they're expelled. From every corner of the earth they were thrown out by Christians. Or at least Romans parading themselves as Christians. So surely there'll be light at the end of the tunnel. The Dark Ages end. The Reformation has abound. Yea, Luther. Yea, Swingley. Yea, Wycliffe. John Huss. All of the guys that we hold as heroes, right? None of them friends of the Jews. You know who Hitler quoted in Germany to justify what he did? Luther. He quoted Luther more than he quoted Nostradamus. Isn't that interesting? You know why? Luther was excited about the Jews when he got this revelation about salvation. But when they didn't become Gentile Christians immediately, when they didn't give up all forms of Judaism and become like Luther, he said they're stiff necked, they're rebellious, they're cursed by God. Some, some writers of the time said they committed deicide. They killed God. Every year around Christmas, you know what it meant to the Jews in the Reformation age? We're going to be beaten and killed if we show ourselves on the street because the kids chanted Christ killer. I didn't understand why the Jewish population was upset when the movie Passion came out. I thought, you know, golly. Well, I mean, this, this is a good thing. It's about your king, you know. They're upset because throughout history that has been the anthem to justify Persecuting them. You killed Christ. I've been to the room where the court took place. I've been there. It's not any bigger than this room. You can't fit a whole nation in here, can you? That whole nation didn't chant, Let His blood be on us and on the heads of our children. You couldn't fit the whole nation in the room. Have you ever been in a group that had poor leadership? Oh, good. Then you can identify with the Jews. Not every Jew is a Christ killer. We need to adjust our thinking. Going in Ezekiel 36. This is going to be a long one, and I'm sorry, but listen. I'm going to promise that if you can swallow this steak I'm fixing to give you, there will be dessert at the end. Okay? And the dessert will come in the form of some other teaching. This is important. When we talk about the promises of God made to a nation, you know that the dysphoria, the spreading out of the Jews started in AD 70 and by 140, there's just a remnant left in the land. Okay? You know that. But here are the promises that God made to them. Ezekiel 36, Son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The enemy said of you, Aha! The ancient heights have become our possession. The enemy said to the mountains of Israel, You have become my possession. Therefore prophesy and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says because they ravaged and hounded you from every side so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations and the object of people's malicious talk and slander. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Sovereign Lord. Ezekiel is writing in a day, almost 600 years before Jesus, 700 years before the mass dysphoria, there were smaller dysphorias throughout history, but before the mass dysphoria, and he said there's going to be a day when the nations are going to talk maliciously because they have taken possession of God's land. He said, so prophesy to the land. Who's he prophesying to? The land. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys, to the desolate ruins and desert towns that have been plundered and ridiculed by the rest of the nations around you. Israel looks like California today, y'all. It's beautiful. Lush valleys growing grapes. 80% of Europe's agriculture comes out of Israel. Every Muslim nation that buys flowers for their dignitaries and sends them to their wives, they come out of Israel. The, the flower factories of Holland, the, the Dutch uh, flowers that are sold around the world are imported from Israel. And yet, this guy says there would be a day when it would be a desolate land. And it was. It was from about 140 all the way up to this century. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, In my burning zeal, I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against Edom. For with glee, with malice in their hearts, they made my land their own possession so that they might plunder its pasture land. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I speak in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the scorn of the nations. Therefore this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I swear with uplifted hand that the nations around you will also suffer scorn." God swore with an uplifted hand that the nations who troubled Israel would be troubled. That are to scare us. But you, O mountains of Israel, will produce branches and fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come home. Though it was desolate, it would produce fruit for the people. Now, he's going to say things like this more, but here's what you need to know. Mark Twain, a famous author. We all know Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, his writing name. Famous author in American history. A a guy that would be known by the nation that is leading the world during the time it would happen, visits the land and says he's never seen a more desolate place. He writes about it extensively. He said a goat was on a mountainside and he had to assume he was eating rocks because there was nothing else for him to eat. And yet as soon as the people began coming home, the land began to sprout. It grew. It didn't grow for the Muslims. It didn't grow for the uh, European invader crusaders that were Christians. You know who it grew for? The people that were supposed to be there. God prepared the people for the land and the land for the people because they're in a covenant together. If you were a Jew when you were born, you were circumcised. The circumcision was the sign of the covenant that you had with the land and with the God of the land. Incidentally, on a side note, you don't have a choice about circumcision. If you're a Jew, you're in a covenant with God and you're in covenant with the land. Don't have that choice whether you want to be or not want to be. At bar mitzvah, age 13, you had to show that you could read the Bible. There's a passage that you read from. When you could read the Bible, if my son was 13, I'd have him stand up in front of you all. He would read it. If he couldn't read it, this didn't happen. But if he read it and read it without making a single mistake, I would say, Thank you, Lord God, for releasing me from my obligation. He's become a a son of the commandment today. You know what God required of the Jewish people? They were in covenant from birth. When they could read, when they could read, they were responsible themselves to God. Now think about that. What does that mean to you? That means that from the time that you can read, you're accountable for your own actions because the truth's been bound in a book for you so that all men are without excuse. For they will come home. I am concerned for you and will look on you with favor. You will be plowed and sown. And I will multiply the number of people upon you, even the whole house of Israel. I'll come back to that. The towns will be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will increase the number of men and animals upon you and they will be fruitful and become numerous. I will settle people on you as in the past and will make you prosper more than before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will cause my people Israel to walk upon you. They will possess you and you will be their inheritance. You will never again deprive them of their children. The people were not in the land for 2,000 years. The land was desolate. But God said almost 600 years before Jesus, 2,600 years ago, they will come back to the land they will never again be thrown out of the land. The land will produce for them an abundance. We're living in a day when that happened. You know when it first started to happen? A trickle began in the 1890s. A guy named Theodore Herzl began to lay the foundations for something called Zionism. You need to know that Zionism is support of the Jewish people making Aliyah. Aliyah is a going home, an ascending to Jerusalem. They speak of it as simply the phrase means going up. Because to them, to be in Jerusalem is to be close to God because it's the land that God gave them. From 1890, that started a trickle. Where there was just a few Jews in the land, the floodgates started to open. In the last hundred years, y'all, in the last hundred years, we've seen the promise that God made to Ezekiel being fulfilled. In May 14, 1948, the nation that Micah spoke of became a nation in a single day. That had never been done before. Never anywhere on the planet. And they went in and where there were swamps, they planted trees that dried up the swamps. Where there were barren deserts. Think about this. People like Isaiah prophesied, the flowers will bloom in the desert. You know what the Jews did? They went. They took sea uh, sand, put it in the desert, and watered it, and they grew flowers in the middle of the desert. You know what's interesting about this? They did not read the Bible and go, oh wow, the Bible says this, let's go do it. In fact, the first settlers, this, to some people this diminishes the promise. To me it enhances it. The first settlers of Israel, you know who they were? Communist Jews. Jews fleeing socialist and communist countries where they had been deprived of the Word. Most of them were extremely, extremely atheistic. They didn't go home because they thought God told them to go home. They went home because they wanted to flee the countries they were in. And you know what? They could look in the rearview mirror later and go, wow, some religious Jews told me that we would grow crops in this area and we would plant flowers in this area. And look, we didn't know it said that. And we did. See, they didn't go out to fulfill the promise of God. They went out just to do what men do. And it fulfilled the promise of God. You don't have to work to bring the promises of God about. He's bigger than you. He'll bring them about. Prophecy is not always for predicting the future, which is what we think. It's for confirming the past was directed by God. That's worth writing down if you ever think about that again. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because people say to you, you devour men and deprive your nation of its children, therefore you will no longer devour men or make your nation childless, declares the Sovereign Lord. No longer will I make you hear the taunts of the nations, and no longer will you suffer the scorn of the peoples or cause your nation to fall, declares the Lord. Again the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. That's true. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations, and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and actions. God's saying 600 years before it happens that He's going to do it. There's going to be blood guilt on the land, and He's going to scatter the people among the nations. What an awesome God. And He did it. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned My holy name. For it was said of them, These are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave His land. See, as long as the Jews were outside of Israel, people could look and say, Those are supposed to be God's people. Those are the people God promised they'd live in Israel. And look, they have it. Not for 10 years, not for 20 years, not for 100 years, not for 1,000 years, for 2,000 years. It looked like God's promises were failing. Jesus claimed to be the author of life. He said, If you were in him, you crossed from death to life. It didn't look like his promise failed for an hour. Didn't look like his promise failed for a day. Not two days. But at the end of the third day, his promise came to pass, didn't it? He showed he had power over death. See, God's willing to put himself on the line to look like a failure so that his, when he pulls off his promise, it's that much bigger of a triumph. We need to be willing. We need to be willing to put our faith on the line. We need to be willing to believe the promises of God when everything around you says it can't be true, it's not true. I had concern for my holy name, which is the house of Israel, profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. Say, why does God love the Jews? Is it because they're great people? Is it because they're more spiritual than you? They're smarter than you? They're better than you? Not at all. He did it for the sake of His name, not for them. He chose them, He gave them promises, and He will fulfill the promises for His name's sake. Now think about that in you. What are you taught to say as a Christian? I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy, but He has made me worthy. I didn't deserve it. It was a free gift. All of the churchy things we say. It's true of Israel, and it's true of us. He didn't do it for you, He did it for His great name's sake. He takes men who were sinners, men who were. Vile, And He makes us righteous. Not because we're better than anybody else, but for His name's sake. Because people go, my God, He did it. Look at Him. He's awesome. There's a bunch more, but I'm going to finish just this paragraph. I will show the holiness of My great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord. When I show Myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and I will bring you back into your own land. There are many more things that speak of rebuilding cities, cultivating lands. Here's the bottom line. God is showing Himself to be great through the Jewish people by performing for them what He's promised. We need to recognize the day that we live in. We need to understand the Hebraic nature of what we've come into. The promises given to them that we were grafted into. And here's some of the benefit as Gentile Christians. When you begin to understand the root, when you begin to understand the promises, that the promises centered around a unique people with specific criteria. You know, God told them how to eat, how to dress, you know, how to mourn, how to marry, how to bury... How do even go to the bathroom? God told them how to do everything as an example to us. The reason that the Word was written down was as an example to us whom the fulfillment of the ages has come on. What they worked for, they did not initially receive, but we have, and they will. With that in mind, turn with me to Numbers 15. This is the dessert. Okay? I do a lot of teaching that can get dry and I know that because it's important that we know things. But here's something that will enhance your study. If you know that this Bible is written from a Hebraic perspective, if you know that Jesus was a Jew and that the religion that we've inherited is a sect of Judaism called the way. You know, it was never called Christianity. It was called the way. Other people looked at Jews who were followers of the way and called them Christians because they believed that the Christ had come. But they called themselves followers of the way. Paul stood up and said before the governors, I admit that I'm a follower of the way. Then didn't say I admit that I'm a Christian. I defy you to find those words in the Bible. It's not there. Y'all in Numbers 15? Let me tell you something real quick, just to keep in your mind, okay? When we're talking about the promises that were given to Israel, promises of the land, promise of the nation, promise of the descendants. And they were cut off from it for those 2,000 years, and in our day we're seeing it come back. I want you to think about this. In Israel, since the year 2000, till May, okay, so these statistics are 30 days old, there have been 21,657 attacks. If That had been done in the United States proportionately in other words considering the total population That would be one million one hundred ninety one thousand one hundred and thirty five terrorist attacks Can you imagine that we've had a few and those few look what they've done to our nation? So has Israel been opposed? How about this there have been nine hundred and sixty three Israeli deaths since the year 2000 as the direct result of terrorism? If you consider the population and look at it proportionally, that would be 52,965 deaths that would have occurred in the United States if that occurred here. Do you think there would be outrage? Think we'd be crying for war? Think we'd want to fight? Since the year 2000, there have been 6,369 injuries. And what constitutes an injury is like the loss of a limb. A family seriously affected, we're not talking about splinters here, in Israel. If you multiplied that out for the population of the United States versus Israel, that would be as the result of terrorism, 350,295 people would have been injured by terrorism. Do you think God's nation is under attack? Of course it is. The same way that we're under attack every day. We need to think about that. We need to ally. But the same nation that's been attacked, listen to how they've been blessed. In the surrounding Muslim countries, not just immediately bordering, but the Muslim countries of the world, there are 600 million Muslim Arabs in the world. Okay? They produce $600 billion of gross domestic product. So there is, for every 1 million Arabs in the world, there is $1 billion of gross domestic product. Sounds like a lot, huh? Half of it comes from oil. Half comes from oil. They don't have to do anything for it. It's just in the ground. So that's a one-to-one ratio or a one-to-one-half a ratio if you remove the oil. I wonder how God's people compare to that. If God said they would be blessed, if He said He would multiply them in the land, if He said He would give them more agriculture, if He said that He would do this not for them but for His name's sake, what kind of testimony is God giving as opposed to the Arabs? Well, there are six million Jews. 600 million Muslim Arabs, 6 million Jews in Israel. So you, you see the vast disparity in numbers of people there? And yet they produce $140 billion in gross domestic products so that you don't have to get out your calculators. Where the Arabs were a 1 to 1 ratio or 1 to 1 half if you removed the oil. Jews have no oil. It's not one drop of oil in Israel. It's a 1 to 23 ratio. They produce 23 times every person called chosen of God in Israel, every Jew, produces 23 times what the Muslim nations around them produce per capita. Do you think they're blessed? Do you think God gave them a witness? 23 times with no oil. How about that? So do we really need the Muslim nations to provide us with oil and do we really need to cater to them? Or do we just need to trust that God will do what He said He would do? Sounds to me like we need more Jews in Israel. If every Jew in Israel is producing 23 times what every Arab in the world is producing. I thought that was worth mentioning. Okay, we're in Numbers 15. We're going to close within 10 minutes. So you all stay awake for me. Numbers 15, verse 37. The Lord said to, Moshe, to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corner of your garments with blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that they may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will consecrate, be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. To be your God, I am the Lord your God. God said that every Jew, every Jew He brought out, every Jew for the generations to come had to have tassels on their garments in the four corners of their garments and it had to have blue thread on it. Well, why would that be important? Y'all turn to 1 Samuel 24. We don't have time to read them. But I'll show you these. In 1 Samuel 24, you see David hiding in a cave in En Gedi. I went to a cave in En Gedi, not the cave, but I repelled from cliffs in En Gedi. And what happens, and this is, this is horrible, and I apologize for having to bring this up in church, but there's no toilets in the desert. So even people who are repelling, people who are you know, out in the middle of the desert, what they do... When the call of nature hits is they run off to a little cleft in the rocks to a cave somewhere away from everybody else where there's some privacy. There's little tufts of toilet paper everywhere there's people. It's, It's horrible. It's horrendous. Well, David is in a cave hiding with his men because a king that God anointed named Saul, God anointed Saul, goes into the cave to do his business. And he squats... and cuts off the corner of his garment. That's that. What did God say that was for? That was to remind the Israelites of God's rulership in their life. The authority that God had given them. They put 613 knots in these. These are called tzitzis. 613 knots. You know why? There are 613 commands given to the Jewish people in the Bible. This came known, the blue thread in it, what's what's blue in the Bible? Heavenly. This became known... As a man's authority. Because his authority was descended from God in heaven. And so when he looked at these, he saw the authority of God working in his life. When David cut off the corner of Saul's garment, what he was doing was showing that God's authority had been cut off from him. And he was conscience stricken because God never told him to do that. And it broke his heart. To all the men, it meant, hey, the king has lost his authority. David's going to become king. And David went out and repented. said, Saul, you men didn't protect you very well. Today I could have killed you, and I didn't because you're the Lord's anointed. And the Word says not to harm the Lord's anointed. And he repented right there before the people. What David cut off was one of those tassels. How do we know that? Because what was Saul? A Jew. He had to have it on. That's the corner of his garment. How do we know that? Numbers 15 says it. Well, that's one instance. Is that important? It's important. I think it helps you understand the story. But how about this? Ruth 3, verses 1 through 11. Remember, Ruth is speaking with Naomi. Naomi says, hey, look, Boaz is your kinsman redeemer. He's been looking after you. If you want to be married again, or you want to be in the messianic lineage. If you want to be in the human channel for the Messiah, because Boaz was then what you need to do is go lay at his feet on the threshing floor and see what happens. So Boaz is sleeping in the threshing floor. He's got his garment on. He's covering him up. She lays down by his feet. When he wakes up, they have a little conversation. You know what he does? He covers her with his garment. Now, when you're reading that with a Western mind, it almost sounds sexual in nature. What do these things represent again? The authority that descended to you from God. The commands of God. What was he doing? He was placing her under his authority. He was grateful that she wanted to come under his authority. And he thanked her for it. She was grateful to be in his protection. You know what? She knew she had been married to a Moabite. She knew she wasn't deserving. She appealed to his kindness and he was ready to show mercy. And her kinsman redeemer redeemed her. Did y'all begin to see a picture there? Did we come to somebody? Come under his covering? We knew we weren't worthy. But His mercy was shed upon us and now we have a relationship. Who else might have worn one of these garments that was a Jew? The King of the Jews. He wore this. He wore this everywhere He went. How do we know that? Because Jesus never broke a law. Never. He broke some of their traditions that were not laws, but He kept all of their laws. So in Luke 8:42, when it says a woman pressed through the crowd, and she reached and she touched his garment. Luke says actually the hem of the garment. Others just say clothing. That's because when we translate it, we don't know what it is. We, we didn't translate it with a Jewish mind. What did the hem of his garment have to be, according to Numbers 15? It had to be these tassels. Had to be. So, when she reaches up and touches him... if snuck up in the I'm coming under your authority. I believe that your authority has descended from heaven like that blue thread. I believe that you're the perfect representation of the law. I believe that you're keeping all of the Jewish customs, that you are the king of the Jews. That's why she was healed. Not because, like the Catholics think, he had a magic robe. You know, you ever see that movie with Victor Mature in it? They've got the robe of Jesus. After Jesus is gone, they throw it on people and then, you know, they get healed or saved. How absurd is that? It's because of what it represented. Every Jew wore this every day, and they wore it because it reminded them. They looked at the knots, remembered the commands of God. They looked at the blue, remembered that their authority came from a heavenly place that was God ordained. Now, interestingly enough, if you stretch this out and you've got these tassels, right? To a little kid, what might this look like? Kate, What do you do with capes? Fly. Fly. What else do people fly with? Wings. So when the Bible says in Malachi, the sun will rise and he'll have healing in his wings. What do you think that might mean? In the authority that descends from God, the heavenly authority based in the commandments that God gave to show the righteous requirements of the law, there is healing. And when Jesus came, the perfect fulfillment of it in his wings, there would be healing. It's a word picture. You wouldn't know that if you didn't know about the Jews, though, would you? See, we have a rich heritage in Judaism that we need to rediscover. We don't need to become Jews. God didn't tell me to wear this every day. I'm not going to. If you do, I'll think you're a weirdo. But I can learn about it. I've got a shofar I like to blow. But you know what? I don't blow it to keep the feast. God didn't give those to me. He didn't tell me I had to do it. He told a Jew he had to do it. God's Word says, I think it's Psalm 149, He gave His laws to the Jews and to no other nation. Didn't give them to me, but I can learn from them because I've been grafted into it. Six times in the Psalms you see the phrase, the shadow of your wings. Psalm 91 is the one we all love. You know, He who dwells in the shadow of the Almighty, the shelter of the Most High. It speaks about the wings and the shadow of God. What is that? That's being in the covering of God. He tells Ezekiel in Ezekiel 16, said Israel was like a a woman, and I came by and saw her as a baby and I watched her grow. When I saw she was old enough, I covered her with my wings. Is that because God's a bird? No. It's a word picture. (laughs) Yeah, I almost went to that 80s song. Uh, It's because it's a word picture that the Jews understood. The Bible speaks of God wearing a prayer shawl. Figuratively. Wings. Jesus said, like a, a mother hen, I long to gather, you know, as you begin to get this, it makes your understanding of the scripture more real. Now I wanted to read all of those and go through that, but we don't. We don't have time. But what's important is that you realize that when Jesus lived, moved, operated, he did it as a Jew. So when people grab the hem of his garment or something, it's not it's not the hem of a pair of Levi's, although Levi's were originated by a Jew. It's it's not Jerbo Jeans. It yeah, Jerbo I that shows you how old I am. He used the culture of the people. God showed Himself to the world through the Jewish culture. So if we want to understand God, we need to know a little more than we do about the Jewish culture. And more than that, we need to quit acting as if the Jewish culture is all bad and wrong. It's not. It's not. The law... you know, We said we don't want to be into legalism, and I don't. The law was for good. It just constrained the Jewish people. But it does teach the righteous requirements of God. How? Well, do I have to keep the dietary covenant? No, absolutely not. Number one, I wasn't a Jew. And if I was a Jew, because I'm in Messiah, I don't have to. But does it mean that the principle was still there to teach you something? Sure. taught you that God makes a distinction between clean and unclean things. All of the law is that way. We need to learn that. We need to seek that out. And when you think about these scriptures and you see wings and you see healing in the wings and you see hem of garments, and there's a bunch more than I did, Think about that. God said they had to wear it. Incidentally, Jews who believe the word that are in Israel today, but that want to fit into the business environment, they wear their suits, you know. And out of the corners of their belts, they have little tassels because they wear an undergarment and they stick the tassels out. That's kind of the attitude of, Lord, I'm going to keep your law, but I'm going to, you know, do it the way that I want to do it. You know, it's kind of like if you can't walk a certain distance on a Sabbath, you know, or you can't make fire on a Sabbath. To touch an elevator button is to make fire because electricity comes in it, they say. So they just make their elevators run without you having to touch the buttons, you know. They work for ways around it. That's not to say they're bad people. What my goal was today was to get you to understand that there's a people uh, that is a nation. There's a piece of land. And then there are descendants of Abraham. All three are in covenant with God. That's the covenant we've been grafted into. We need to realize that. We need to think about it. And as we start to examine the Bible, and we will for the next few months, from a Hebraic standpoint, you find that we've missed out on an awful lot. All right, y'all stand up. We'll pray. Did you learn anything in that?